Hi, everyone, and welcome back to The Debrief. This week, we're talking about silence, communication, and the synod, Archbishop Fernandez and ideological Catholics, and then the Strickland Watch in Tyler Continues. This and more in just a moment as we bring on Mike. Welcome, friends. Welcome, Mike, to The Debrief. It's our weekly show where we talk about news, questions, and controversies facing the Catholic Church. I'm Dominic, founder of Smart Catholics. And I'm Mike, the editor and co-founder of the website Where Peter Is. So for the first story, the Synod and Communications, regarding uh, next month's Synodal Assembly, an increasing number of journalists and commentators are expressing concerns about transparency and communication um, about the Synod as the meeting is taking place. On the flight back from Mongolia, Pope Francis was asked two questions about the amount of access to the proceedings that would be given to the media. So what's the story here? Yeah, it, it's interesting. This this week's debrief is not a lot of action, but a lot of ongoing drama. And it seems that in the lead up to each of these synods, the uh, opposition to the Pope will voice a lot about um, their concerns that are coming up, almost setting the stage. You know, mm -hmm. before the Amazon Synod, a lot of traditionalists and uh, conservative critics of Pope Francis were complaining about uh, pantheism or paganism seeping into the message of the Synod. Mm -hmm. And then we were greeted with the so-called Pachamama controversy mm -hmm. during the uh, lead up to both Synods on the Family there was a lot of talk about the Casper proposal, which was uh, Cardinal Walter Casper's proposal to reintegrate divorced and remarried Catholics back into communion without um, having to stop living as uh, husband and wife. And in reality, both of these controversies didn't really come to fruition during the Synod, uh, certainly things were discussed, but this, um, but it, it became a, a big hullabaloo. So on the right, there is a lot of discussion about the secrecy behind the Synod. Um, when the Synod of Bishops was first implemented under Paul VI, the fact of the matter is the entire proceeding was, uh, was confidential. It was secret. Um, there, there were no, um, even the final draft of the document by the bishops was not released officially by the synodal office to the public. Now, the fact of the matter was, most of the time, according to uh, Jerry O'Connell in um, a recent podcast uh, for America Magazine for, for Inside, the, Inside the Vatican, he's a veteran uh, Vatican journalist, and he talks about how every single time the final document and the votes would get leaked to the press and published by unofficial sources. Yeah. And during a synod on Africa, during uh, John Paul II's papacy, he talked to Cardinal Lorenze, who at the time was one of the was one of the presidents of the synod or, or one of the leaders of the assembly, and said, "Why can't you just release this final document? It's going to get out anyway. It." If it's a secret document, then we're not supposed to be talking about it. So the Vatican isn't going to address any of these issues. And a lot of people, especially the people about whom the Synod is related, um, namely at that point, the people of Africa, were interested in what yeah. uh -huh. in what their leaders had to say about it. So uh, over the years, more and more information has been published. At a certain point, we would see a 
at a certain point, they started releasing a midterm document during the assembly. Um, during the 2014 Synod on the Family, however, when that midterm document was published, a lot of the Synod delegates, uh, Cardinal Burke included, said that this did not reflect the discussion of the Synod. This didn't reflect what, what was talked about during the interventions. This is an ideological advocacy job, uh, you know, as a sort of a preset document written by the drafters, according to the drafters' own agenda. So since then, we haven't had a midterm document. Um, mm -hmm. One of the things that happens with uh, during the Synod is each of the delegates gets four minutes or three minutes to stand up and give a presentation for uh, the entire body. And these are protected under pontifical secret, although mm -hmm. at least in the last few synods, as long as I've been aware, bishops, well, the participants, whether they were bishops or not, were allowed to release their own uh, their own intervention, the script, the text to the public. But unless it was released to the public, then it was it fell under secrecy. And the other thing that's happened, and it's come under tons of scrutiny during Pope Francis's uh, synods, and and really synods, um, they happened. They were important. They resulted in important document from the Pope, mm -hmm. um, but they weren't given this kind of scrutiny by the public. But what happened? What happens? During the Synod, after each day of the Synodal Assembly, uh, a press a press briefing is given. Um, during the Synod on the Family, Father Thomas Rosica, a Canadian priest, was sort of the main spokesperson or the MC of these press conferences, and he'd usually bring along a couple of bishops who, who wanted to speak about what happened, and without naming names and without perhaps quoting anything specific, they'd give an overview of what took place during during the Senate. Mm -hmm. um, I think the, the miscommunication kind of reached a peak during the Amazon Senate because there were a lot of journalists who were expressing their concerns about paganism and the Pachamama and the statue and all these things. And the delegates weren't even really aware of what was going on outside. There was no mutual dialogue. There was miscommunication. They didn't yeah. realize that the explanations that they were giving were not sufficing or were not satisfying people's questions. Mm -hmm. uh, they were even engaging in like, well, it could represent this or maybe that. And they didn't realize that everything that they were that they were saying was interpreted in the worst possible light. They were right. able to give a thorough response. They were able to maybe give the official explanation given to them by some leader, but they were never able to address the issues that were being raised specifically, especially mm -hmm. by an antagonistic press. Well, this brings us to the current Senate. Uh, so even though the proceedings have long been closed to the press, the press is not allowed in the room. They're allowed to the presentation. They're allowed to talk to the delegates. Obviously, they can report on the interventions that are released or the, or the documents that are released to the public. But Actual access has never been allowed to the press, but the interesting thing that was, um, as you mentioned, he was asked twice about it on the plane by, of course, members of the Vatican press. Neither mm -hmm. of these is, was particularly antagonistic. It was an, is an antagonistic journalist or, or critic of the Pope. They, but they were asking that because the synod involves laity, it involves 
priests. It involves people, women, men, women, people at all levels of the church. It's, it's, although it's called the Synod of Bishops, I have a sense that in the future, it will just be called the Synod. Um, shouldn't the public have the right to information or to hear what's going on? Um, Pope Francis's response was that the synod is should take place together. A true synodal process is free from outside influences, sort of like a papal conclave. Mm -hmm. um, he talked about, of course, the press briefings and that sort of thing. But a lot of Catholics, well, first of all, on the right, they're treating this secrecy like it's a new thing. <laughs> you know, they're ignoring yeah. the fact that john paul and benedict compared to what francis allows like that there was virtually no media access to what was mm -hmm. going on at the time um you know we have familiaris consortio after a synod on the family and all we have about what actually went on in there are anecdotes we don't know right. necessarily who said what so fast forward to to the present day and we have um the, the Catholic right is complaining that this is being done in secrecy in order to drive an agenda that is contrary to church, church teaching and is trying to change Catholic doctrine. I mean, you've heard all these lines. We've all heard all these lines about what's supposedly happening in the Senate. Um, on the right, there or on the left, there seems to be a journalistic question about, well, if this is so important for the universal church, then why doesn't the universal why why isn't the universal church talking about what's going on? So that's that's kind of an overview of the issue, and it's lengthy, but it I, this yeah. seems to be the controversy that they're going to build up to headed into okay. the synod. Yeah, the latest latest outrage. So, are there any possible measures that will be made to increase media access? Yeah. So. One thing that I know that certain people are talking to certain journalists has been proposed is to at least make the um, interventions accessible to the public. Um, there is a little bit of pushback against this because once again, if somebody hears something, somebody has a deeply held um, something that they've prayerfully discerned that they're called to speak about, and then they hear some outside criticism or some outside threat or rumor, it might hold them back from actually proclaiming it if they know it's going to be made public. Like there's like there gotcha. are understandable pros and cons about that. Mm -hmm. But I think I think one thing that's definitely uh going to be a factor is that the uh or, or is definitely going to remain silent are the small group discussions. They break mm -hmm. into small groups of eight to ten based on language and really get into the nitty gritty of these issues. Um, those small groups do write reports. Um, those will be made public, but of course, all of it has to do with the timing. There's going to be right. real time reporting going mm -hmm. on during the Senate. I'm not familiar with the views of everybody that's taking part in the Senate. One name to worry about who might be the point person for the more reactionary critical side is Cardinal Mueller. Uh, who the former DDF prefect who has become increasingly conspiratorial, talking about globalism, talking about um, conspiracies. He's scheduled to speak at a few conferences that are run by organizations that are, uh, 
you know, borderline schismatic, uh, it, to, to, to put it, to put it frankly. So my concern is that if the synod is not presented in a way that is that addresses the public's basic need to know what's going on, uh, the the synod, yeah. according to Cardinal Mueller, might be the the overarching narrative. Mm -hmm. um, and you know, it, it was nice of Pope Francis to offer him an opportunity to attend the synod, and given his past position, it makes logical sense. But to me, it seems that there are figures on the Catholic right who may have made better choices for that voice of the opposition that are less um, less embroiled in the Vigano and New World Order and, and, and QAnon type controversies. So, but I think, I think that there is a need to address this. The church cannot be caught flat-footed like they were with the Pachamama controversy. Mm -hmm. um, they know that this is the dominant narrative that's being projected as the Synod Assembly approaches. So I think that it is something that the church needs to deeply, to use a synodal word, discern mm -hmm. how they should prepare for it. So speaking of dealing with narratives, the next topic is Cardinal Fernandez and ideological Catholics. And I saw a headline recently where he's been making the rounds and he's given 50 odd interviews on these different topics. So this past week, you published an article discussing two of his recent interviews. One was a long interview with Antonio Spadaro, the recently departed editor of La Civilta Cattolica. And then the other was with Edward Penton of the National Catholic Register. And he's a reporter with a reputation for being opposed to Pope Francis and supportive of his most outspoken critics. Did this stand out to you? Yes, it did. But first, I want to uh, address the, the first interview you mentioned with Father Antonio Spadaro. He has been appointed undersecretary for the Vatican Council on Culture, I think. So he's moving into the Curia. He spent 12 years with La Civilta Catalica. Um, I was able to meet him in Rome. He was a wonderful person. I wish him all the best. Um, he's the one who's been responsible for these interviews, for these dialogues with the Jesuits on transcribing I see. when the Pope takes these journeys. So um, he has been a major figure in the Vatican exposure of Pope Francis. So mm -hmm. as sort of his last act, he got this really long interview with, uh, with Cardinal designate Fernandez. And mm -hmm. um, it was, it was very informative and probably one of the more thorough interviews that Fernandez has given regarding his vision, regarding uh, faith, regarding pastoral practice. Now, the thing that surprised me, because in this polarized church, not very often do we see people venturing into, quote unquote, enemy territory. Mm -hmm. um, somebody recently, for example, asked if I would be open to interviewing or dialoguing with Cardinal Burke. And I said, sure, I'll talk to him. I tried to talk to him when I first wrote articles about him and I got no response. Well, I've got no response this time. It just doesn't happen. People go to these friendly outlets. They they speak their inside baseball. Um, the polarization bridge, even if it's Pope-friendly sources, including like with, with Father Spadaro or with uh, Vatican News, a lot of times they don't, uh, church figures don't talk about the issues 
of contention mm -hmm. that the quote unquote opposition feels about them. So this was a very interesting and to me a very refreshing and eye-opening interview. Okay. So, so um well go ahead. So did he receive any criticism? Yeah, yeah. So obviously he's asked point blank about the deposit of faith, about um blessing same-sex relationships or people in same-sex relationships. He was asked about things like Amoris Laetitia. He was asked about uh, the deposit of faith. One of the first questions he asked, he was asked was, in your view, what is what does a modernized church look like? Mm -hmm. And his response was, I don't think that that's an appropriate term to use. The church isn't modernized, mm -hmm. but the magisterium and the... Um, and, and the teaching of the church develops, it, um, it, it teaches the faith, represents it anew to each mm -hmm. era, but to call the church modernized implies somehow that the church is adapting from modernity as opposed right. to responding to modernity and speaking to people today. Mm -hmm. Another uh, question that was raised in and of course, that got people into a tizzy. Um, but he talked about protecting his role as protector of the faith, which is, you know, this office was originally called the Inquisition um, hundreds of, you know, up until about 110 years right. ago or something like that. Mm -hmm. And he talked about how not only are we protect, protecting the deposit of faith, but we're also protecting, and I'm paraphrasing, but he said something to the effect of the doctrine of Pope Francis. And he talked about the living magisterium and he talked about how the teachings of Pope Francis need to be defended. They need to be justified. They need to be um, presented clearly mm -hmm. and interpreted correctly. And of course, this has been the sticking point of the traditionalist versus Pope Francis battle since the beginning. The question is, does the Pope have the authority to authentically interpret doctrines? And at what point is his authority checked or can we reject mm -hmm. his teaching? And yeah. canon law mm -hmm. teaches us that it's impossible. Canon 1404 says the first C is judged by no one. Canon 752, I believe, is says that um, the Pope, when he teaches on faith and morals, even if he's not teaching definitively, the faithful are to grant religious submission of mind and will. The church does not teach that if he teaches something that you think doesn't align with past tradition, then you can reject it and write columns for first things and, and one Peter five about why the Pope is wrong. Like it's a, it, right. it's sort of what does the church actually teach? Mm -hmm. What authority does the Pope have? Mm -hmm. And the response that Archbishop Fernandez gave very clearly addressed that conflict that the, the mm -hmm. dispute over that and it was it was really refreshing to see such a candid response to a critic of the pope or to the questions that the critics of the pope are making mm -hmm. um yeah. it, it seems to me that a lot of a lot of times the answers dance around or they don't satisfy i you know i kind of went on a rant a few months ago about uh, Archbishop Paglia, who's the um, president of the Pontifical Academy for Life, that he always yeah. seems to give these half answers that don't 
address the core of what the people are complaining about. And I felt mm -hmm. that Archbishop Fernandez in this interview laid it down clearly, wow. you know, and, and now you can take that quote and you can take it to the bank and look, this is what the guy who's in charge of the doctrine office says, take it up with the doctrine office. Have a problem with it. <laughs> so not all the criticism came from the right though, um, did it? Massimo Fagioli, a professor associated with the Catholic left um, and supporters of Pope Francis also criticized Fernandez, didn't he? Yeah. And this is something, and I, I, Generally, because uh, Professor Fagioli is, is generally supportive of the Pope, we've tended maybe not to pour into his ideology as much as, mm -hmm. as much as is warranted. I know Pedro Gabriel's actually written a couple of articles that were very harshly critical of him for where Peter mm -hmm. is, especially with how he was unsatisfied with the Pope when it came to Corita Amaz Amazonia, um, mm -hmm. his, his, uh, exhortation following the Amazon Synod. Um, it seems that Massimo Fagioli, and I, you know, we haven't really had a, a long discussion about this, but, and the reason why we, we describe this topic as Pope Francis and ideological Catholics, it's when Catholics place their own ideas, their own ideology, their mm -hmm. own biases, over what the church is saying, over what the church is teaching, over thinking with the church, sendiri cum ecclesium, um, ecclesia, um, that's when these polarizations, these conflicts, this gridlock happens. Mm -hmm. And Pope Francis has spoken repeatedly against ideologies. And the thing that Archbishop Fernandez, in all of these interviews that I've read, he has been very orthodox. He has been very clear mm -hmm. about church authority. He has been very clear about where Pope Francis's message lies. And he's been very clear about um, where we are to, to place our ascent, where we, where, what we're supposed to hope in, the type of openness we are supposed to have to the church. And so there are some issues, including um, women's ordination to the priesthood, um, changes to Catholic doctrine on sexual morality. Um, now, the difficulty here is traditionalists going back however long, going back to Vatican I, um, mm -hmm. some traditionalists, they called themselves old Catholics. They thought that mm -hmm. papal infallibility did not line up with the church's tradition, and so they rejected it. Okay. Go to Vatican II. Lefebvre rejected the idea of ecumenism and the idea of religious liberty, because according to his interpretation of Catholic tradition, mm -hmm. these teachings were not in continuity. Mm -hmm. um, and now we have other teachings that people are saying can never be changed. We've already had talk about the death penalty. We've already had talk about how the divorce and remarriage should be welcomed into the church. So I'm not going to put forward, like, I think these things absolutely can never change. Obviously, things like the creed, things that are laid down as infallible. I would be very shocked and probably have a crisis of faith if the Pope was to come out and contradict some of these things. So I'm not going to lay down any certitudes. But I'm also not going to make my obedience. 
obedience to the church contingent on what the church does and doesn't do. If the church discerns that at this time, women mm -hmm. can't be ordained deacons, or if the church discerns that at this time, something else doesn't change. That if the church decides mm -hmm. all masses are going to be an ad orientum and we're going to, and the curia has to be said in Greek for the rest of, you know, for the time being, if, if they say that right. the, the, you know, on the 18th Sunday of ordinary time, the priest has to wear orange vestments. Like my, my faith doesn't depend on these things. You know, my mm -hmm. faith depends on Christ established the Catholic church as his church. He established Peter and his successors as the authorities in the church in an unbroken chain that will never allow the gates of hell to prevail against it. And we have this guarantee from Christ. So there's a problem with leftward ideology. If you if you hook your uh, your faith to the church is going to need to change this and this and this, or else it's bad or it's wrong or it's immoral. Or if you have uh, if you chain it to a more traditionalist ideology, whereas this, this, and this can never be touched by a Pope ever again. And if it does, I'm going to recognize and resist and all this other stuff. Like that's kind of my low down discipleship where Peter is. There is the church view mm -hmm. of Catholic ecclesiology in a nutshell. And this is the way Christ established it. Christ did not establish us as a church that debates things on the internet. They didn't establish us as a church that Googles obscure documents and relies on translations of them from Sede Vacantist and SSBX websites and, um, you know, YouTubers. Like, this is not, that's not the faith. Now, you're a Catholic nerd. I'm a Catholic nerd. People watching this are Catholic nerds or listening to this are Catholic nerds. That's great. Thomas Aquinas was a Catholic nerd. John mm -hmm. Henry Newman was a Catholic nerd. Um, Father John O'Malley, the great Catholic historian, Jesuit, he was a Catholic nerd. He stuck his nose into these things. He was one of the 0.002% of Catholics who does this kind of stuff. But mm -hmm. for the everyday, ordinary Catholic, mm -hmm. in order to know where to find Catholic orthodoxy, Catholic truth, what the Catholic Church says, is look to Peter. And that's, and we'll be fine. Every schism in the history of the Catholic Church has been a breakaway from Peter. Every heresy taught by the Catholic Church has been corrected by the successor of Peter. So if you're an ideologue, you don't care about that. Or your, your, your idea oversteps Peter. And that is a very dangerous place to be, whether you're on the left or on the right. And that's all I have to say. So Speaking you of, can feel free to respond. I, open well, I was going to say, <laughs> speaking, I, I, that was a, um, that was a great rant. Thank you. And speaking of dangerous places to be, we have our Strickland watch, um, which I don't know if this is going to be an official thing, but it, it might just need to be for a while. So last week, the pillar reported Pope Francis and two high ranking Vatican officials met to discuss the situation with Bishop Strickland. And they stated that the Pope had decided to ask for the Tyler Bishop's resignation. Uh, then later, Jack Jenkins of Religion News Service reported he received an email directly from Strickland saying that he would not step down voluntarily, but would leave if he was removed. What are what are you hearing on this? 
Okay, so one thing that um, the that Jack Jenkins's report, and he's a he's a Vatican reporter or a long term Catholic Catholic news reporter, I guess you would say, and and mainly covering the United States. Um, mm-hmm. And I know him a little bit. In his report, he actually linked to the Bulletino, which is the press release that's issued at Roman noon every single day by the Vatican, and it confirmed that it said at the very top today. Pope Francis met in audience with Bishop Prevost of the Dicastery for Doctrine or Dicastery for Bishops and Apostolic Nuncio Pierre, the Nuncio mm-hmm. to the United States. That meeting did happen. It's documented. It's a matter of public record. What happened in that meeting is not a matter of public record, but the pillar said that their source, who is close to the close to the Dicastery for Bishops. Presumably it's a, a low-ranking staffer or somebody that um you know gets gets these scoops and who isn't bound necessarily by the pontifical secret, um said that they met specifically to discuss Bishop Strickland and that the conclusion reached was that Bishop Strickland um was asked uh, would be asked to resign. Now that was a week and a half ago. Mm-hmm. Obviously, the Vatican's not going to issue a press release if Bishop Strickland is asked. What it'll come down to is whether or not Bishop Strickland tells somebody else that he was asked, who asked him, what he said. Um, Jack Jenkins said that he emailed Bishop Strickland and got a an email directly back from Bishop Strickland saying mm-hmm. that he would not step down voluntarily, but if he was removed, he would obey. I can personally confirm that I have seen with my own two eyes uh, an email from Bishop Strickland to another person in which he says that if asked, he will not resign. So I can corroborate that this is what he is telling people. So if Um, he doesn't resign, he doesn't step down, then what happens? Well, and, and so that's the thing. It's a Asking the bishop to resign is 99.5% of the time. It means that the bishop submits their official resignation, and then it's in the pope's hands, and the pope typically will accept that resignation. If you remember back in 2018, uh, when the abuse crisis in Chile, the scandal, uh, broke out, all of the bishops of Chile were summoned to the Vatican, all 38 of them, and during that meeting, all of them were instructed to write letters of res- resignation to the Pope. And so then over the uh, series of the next few months, something like a third or a half of those bishops, especially those most implicated in, in the cover-up and the scandal, were, um, were their resignations were accepted and they were replaced. Mm-hmm. Um, their Bishop Rick Stika, who was uh, involved in a in a controversy having to do with uh, a seminarian, a former seminarian who had been sexually abusive, who he had basically, I mean, it seems to me that that he believed his side of the story and and therefore handled the situation completely improperly because he was a friend of this seminarian and didn't believe he had done anything. But after a year or two of this scandal, ultimately he was asked to resign. And he submitted his resignation. Now, there are a few cases where bishops say no. 
Now, I'm sure there are some cases out there where the bishop says no, and then the pope just leaves them in place. We never hear about it. I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm sure this this happens. I um, and that's that's the issue with this. We talk about the cone of silence. Mm-hmm. We heard the rumors about the the Vatican visitation, the apostolic visitation, and the Vatican to this day has not confirmed that it ever happened. But Strickland mm-hmm. himself has talked about it. Reporters have confirmed it. Priests who have been involved in this have been, you know, have have spoken to reporters. I have spoken to people who were involved in this in this um, in this visitation. Mm-hmm. This next stage is that supposedly he has been asked or he was about to be asked to step down. When or if that's already happened, I don't know. Um, that will have to leak, or the, he'll have to say something about it. Um, but in a couple of cases, uh, Bishop Martin Holly, who was the Bishop of Memphis for, for two years, he underwent an apostolic visitation in mm-hmm. mid-June, mid to late June, similar to Bishop Strickland in 2018. And he was apparently asked to resign uh, at some point. He refused. And then his removal date was October 24th. So it was a different set of circumstances. Um, Bishop Holly was not an outspoken bishop at all. In fact, the, the issues had to do with non-communication more than more than communication. Um, mm-hmm. But that gives kind of a baseline, a bench line of, of the timeline. Mm-hmm. Um, there are issues involved in Strickland uh, in the diocese regarding management, regarding money. Um, there was a, a law there. They did a huge layoff in the chancery. And I believe there was a, a Title IX settlement that was that cost the diocese a lot of money. Um, money has been spent on various projects. Um, there's a lot of um, there are a lot of questions, and 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 obviously we don't we don't have access to all the details what the findings were of the investigation. If these are severe, in the same way that Holly's Bishop Holly's mismanagement was severe, he might be removed on the same time frame. If it's more based on the ideological problems, mm-hmm. then who knows how long this stuff could stretch out. Uh, mm-hmm. He seems to be becoming more intense. So mm-hmm. I, to me, the, my feeling is like the sooner the better, but but who knows? So do you have any sense of the atmosphere in Tyler in terms of the priests, the chancery employees, and then regular Catholic pusiters? Yeah. So I've spoken to a, num- a number of sources, laity, clergy, chancery worker in the diocese, um, former chancery workers, former clergy that have moved on elsewhere. Um, and there is, well, some of the priests have said that, that what they are trying to do, because as, as we mentioned, Catholic nerds are few and far between. Um, then again, East Texas doesn't have a ton of Catholics. The word gets around the Catholic community. Um, and so I think that there's there's a sense of anxiety among a lot of the people in the pews, but the priests are doing their best to mm-hmm. keep that away from the Sunday mass experience, for example. Right. Obviously, okay. parishioners are coming up to priests and, and, and asking what's going on. Um, chancery employees, uh, I have heard that a lot of the people in the chancery 
are nervous about their jobs, nervous about their future. Mm-hmm. Um, some of them, some of the very high ranking chancery officials have grown endlessly frustrated with Bishop Strickland. And I know that some priests, um, several at least, have asked him to resign. And I have been told that he has said he will not resign. So they've they've gone out on that limb and, and asked him directly to step down. Okay. Um, wow. He, so, yeah, there's, I mean, the, the sense, and then some of the laity that I've spoken to who are deeply concerned or are longtime parishioners who've participated in the life of the local church, my sense is that they just want a resolution to this. I don't think there is any resolution to this, any realistic resolution to this, other than Bishop Strickland leaving voluntarily or involuntarily. Um, mm-hmm. This is kind of critical of me, but, um, and, and you know, I, I wouldn't write it down in an article um, for where Peter is, but my thought is what is taking so long? What more does he have to do? He has written clearly that he rejects the program of yeah. Pope Francis to undermine the faith. He has signed a, an open letter to the Pope, not even to the Pope, to the people of God, mm-hmm. accusing the Pope of heresy. This is, this is not, this is so far beyond the pale for a bishop. Mm-hmm. Like I've criticized the U.S. bishops as a whole before. And mm-hmm. what I sense from them is a reluctance to accept Pope Francis, maybe a quiet rejection, passive aggressive actions that sort of undermine his message or downplay what he's trying to do for the church. Bishop Strickland is in open opposition to the Pope. And yeah. whoever is ghostwriting for him, whoever is instructing him, he's written three apostolic letters in, in the past month. And he said there are more coming in the most recent one. Like, at some point, you got to put the brakes on this. So that's where I am with that, too. So you've got the full Mike Lewis experience today on the debrief. I'm a little Later. fired up. It's a Tuesday, so must be, you know, the midweek, uh, you know the midweek energy is, is kicking in. So. Well, hey, honestly, it's why I wanted to start this show. It's like, I, what is going on out here? And you've got your finger on the pulse with a lot of it. So thank you again for everything today. And friends, we have links to a lot of these, if not all of these are in the description. So check it out. Um, the conversation is brought to you from smartcatholics.com, the free online community for millennials, creators, and learners. Join our private Where Peter Is group to ask your, your follow-up questions on this. Mike is wonderfully active in this, in this group and other members of the Where Peter Is community. You can share your insights and suggest topics for next time. And visit wherepeteris.com for insightful articles, podcasts, spiritual reflections, commentaries by and for faithful Catholics, who support the mission and vision of Pope Francis. Please hit the subscribe button so that uh, you don't miss an episode of the debrief and hit the like button so that more people can discover these conversations. Yeah, I've, I've been watching some of these YouTube videos and they're all like, please hit like and subscribe because the algorithm <laughs> helps bring up our numbers. And so please hit like and subscribe so that the algorithm brings up our numbers. <laughs> yeah, you can even, if you like it, hit the like button three times and that'll it won't help, but it'll make you make us feel better. And hey, get please a VPN, VPN, and come back to the website. <laughs> yeah. Create a new so, YouTube profile. 
support where Peter is on Patreon so that we can continue. I mean, heck, Mike can continue the incredibly needed work with where Peter is. I don't know where I would be in a lot of my faith journey without the the pioneering leadership and and work you've put in and the people that you've marshaled around you. So I'm pretty sure I speak for a lot of people when I say thank you, Mike, for all of your work. Please, everybody, we can help support this team do what they do best. Thanks for joining us. When it comes to news and controversies in the Catholic Church, stay curious, informed, and engaged. God bless. God bless.